Hello and welcome to Fans, a podcast hosted by me, Sachin Akrani, in which I speak to people I like, find interesting or both about being football fans. And joining me for this episode to talk all things Aston Villa, is comedian, writer, he's a hero, not a villain, it's Tom Crane. Tom, how are you? <laughs> very good, what a delightful intro. Well, you know Thank what, you I've, much. I've been stumbling over that all day, the he's a hero, not a villain bit, I was, I was, not, I was not going to do, because <laughs> I kept saying, <laughs> when I was practising, I kept saying, he's not a hero, he's a villain, and then I thought, yeah. that's, that's quite insulting, so um, I nailed it. I don't yeah. know, that, that sort of made me seem quite edgy, and I've never been edgy before, so I would, I'd have taken that as well, I'd have taken you'd villain. Have, you'd have taken being but a bad Someone guy. who's sort of so, ex-choir boy, grew up in Bath, <laughs> you know, I, I'm never described as a villain, or something, yeah. anything mischievous, so I, I would have taken that. That no, would be fine. no shoplifting in your youth? No like, shoplifting, no. Um, as we all when do. I was about 12, I remember my mum giving me 25p for penny sweets and me driving back home and me counting them out on the kitchen surface and realised I had 26 penny sweets. And my mum drove me back uh, to the shop and I gave one of them back to the shopkeeper. That's, that's how lame a child I was. No wow. shoplifting, literally returning something that's like a penny over uh, the value for which I paid. So, uh, yeah. That, that, um, not edgy. So, as I say, would have taken villain. Would have been taken villain. Well, we can do that again. We can do that <laughs> yeah. again. Maybe, maybe do it at the end and then I'll, I'll instantly <laughs> I went on a shoplifting spree at Woolworths in the early 90s. Did you? Yeah, me and a kid what? from my school called Jonathan. Um, are, you, are you the reason they went under? Well, I was wondering that because there was a story last week, wasn't there, from when we were recording about Woolworths coming back and I got very nostalgic about Woolworths. Uh, my two outstanding memories of Woolworths are buying Be Here Now, Oasis's third album, Amazing. Uh, from there in 97, on the day I also got my uh, GCSE results. And, yeah. and also, yeah, going on a shoplifting spree in the early 90s. Um, wow. Uh, what did yeah. you come away with? Well, it was mainly sort of action figures. And because um, I was like 12 or something, I mean, a kid from my school, Jonathan, we saw, so it was a branch very close to, my, uh, to where I lived and the school we went to in Kingsbury, North London. Yeah. Uh, so we used to walk past it every day. And uh, he, my mum used to charmind him because he was... Um, his mum, uh, he was from a single parent family and his mum used to work kind of late hours. And my mum was a childminder, so he, she looked after him. So we'd walk past Woolworths on the way back to mine after school. He'd stay, he'd stay at mine until his mum could pick him up. And we walked past his Woolworths and uh, we both, uh, yeah, I can't remember how it started, but we both, basically every day after school, we'd go in there and nick something. Yeah. And the problem is we got so good, <laughs> double teaming, working together, that we got really cocky. And one Friday afternoon, <coughs> Uh, we're in the toy toy aisle trying to take an, yet another yeah. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle action figure, <laughs> and uh, there was a there was a sort of sh- uh, member of staff in the aisle, and you know you know look if you're going to shoplift, don't do it when there's a member of staff there. You're yeah. asking for trouble, but uh, we were like, ah, we did this, we'll, we'll be fine, we'll get away with it. And we thought we had, and we walk in out of the shop, and then uh, collars literally tugged back by a security guard threw us no in way. the uh, yeah threw us in the uh, back office and. I remember the, uh, the, the store manager saying, Look, I, I can either call the police or your mum. And I immediately, well, call the police, call the police. <laughs> and uh, she's like, no, I'm going to call your mum. You're only 11 or however old I was. So, yeah, my mum came in and um, gave me a big slap. And that was the well, end that, of the that, That's a very sort of sweet mix of, sort of you know, <laughs> risky crime and uh, 
and sort of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle figures. <laughs> like, I'm imagining you in some kind of lockup, and I'm saying, "What are you in for?" And you're saying, "Yeah, like you know, I, I stole a plastic Donatello. That's why." Yeah. I'm in. <laughs> yes. But that, yeah, no, good on you for having the guts to do that. I never had the guts to do any of that sort of stuff. I was an absolute wimp. I did have, a, I, I did buy OK Computer um, at Woolworth, so that was my first ever album. That's my, that's my Woolworth story. It was the first ever album I bought. OK Computer. First ever album you bought was OK Computer. It was. I was given wow. an album before that. So I, 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 at that point, I owned uh, the Lion King soundtrack. Which, <laughs> <laughs> my, that was good though I had that, that it, it was, was good though wasn't it and I, and I made a, a mixtape for a girl called Annabelle who I really fancied when I was about 14 yeah. uh, which is a radio show with me doing all the links and the links <laughs> would be like Annabelle I think you're great and hopefully you'll like this song but um the only album I owned was uh, was the Lion King soundtrack. So all of the songs were from the Lion oh, King soundtrack. I'd make some cheesy link about the circle of life, all that sort of things, yeah. and uh, I sent it to her. And then you know she obviously was disinterested. Um, but uh, well, yeah, so, so, went, so that didn't that didn't hook her in. You know, like twenty five exactly. years later, you still carrying. I should have <laughs> come back with OK Computer. See that you know, Paranoid Androids or Bit of Edge. It's kind of yeah. I never did, but um, yeah, that, that's my. I, I still love that album now. Still, arguably, I think possibly the best album of the last 20, 30 years. Maybe I think it's well, what what is there that's much better than OK Computer? Well, I don't, Tom. I don't even think it's Radiohead's best album for me. Do you Benz, not? I think the Bends. Oh no! Is what are you going to say? The Bends. What's yours? The Bends. Really? Yeah, okay. I love the Bends. I think it's absolutely fantastic. The Bends is fantastic. Top three albums of all time. Along but with... in, the t- in terms of an album representing a band sort of stepping on and yeah. doing something that had never done, been done before, like the Bends is fantastic. Pablo Honey, I think, is a great album as well, if you like yeah. just rock and that sort of excitement. Yeah, yeah. But OK Computer was a real change. I think it's kind of, it's like a quite a pivotal album, isn't it? Yeah. So I, I, do, I do not mean the Bends gets me really excited. It really does. It's fantastic. But there's something about OK Computer which feels like it, it was really important. But maybe that's just because it was, my, it was the first thing I bought. Maybe I, it, in my heart it means more because it's sort of a, a thing of independence and I was no longer the Lion King kid. I was now, <laughs> I was now the kid with the yeah. radio head. So maybe it's yeah. sort of welded itself onto me. Yeah. Anyway. You went from Simba to Scar, mm. uh, transferring from Lion King to Lion <laughs> Computer. No, I mean, I, I respect OK Computer, but it's, yeah, it's not my thing. It's a little okay. bit too out there. I think peak Radiohead is not my radio. And my radio a little bit, as you say, a little bit more... Um, accessible shall we say and the bend was okay. very much no, that definitely enough. my style yeah anyway that's the end of the podcast <laughs> that was the end of the <laughs> podcast with shop and radio <laughs> <laughs> the big two things that everyone did in the 90s uh, now we are going to talk football um, before we do one other thing i want to ask one other non-football thing i want to ask um you're the first uh, comedian we've had uh, or comedy writer on this podcast everyone else has been uh, podcast hosts or yeah. sports writers people of that background uh, and I'm intrigued by how lockdown has affected you because I follow a few comedians on Twitter and know a few personally, and they've been drastically affected by by everything that's happened. And obviously, we're just about to end yeah. a second lockdown for the obvious reasons that, for instance, if you're a standard comedian, you can't perform. And I guess yeah. if you're a writer, things are getting cancelled or not produced. So I'm just curious from your point of view how, how your life's been affected yeah, by everything that's happened since March. I think the, the comedy industry in general really has been as you know, I mean, everyone has, and you know, but I, th- I think obviously entertainment and theater and stuff has been really crippled by uh, COVID um, mm. simply because of, you know, live performances and live audiences. Now, um, so I was um, stand up for like eight, nine years and touring, all that sort of stuff. And over the last few years, I've moved more into comedy writing. So I actually have, haven't been gigging, uh, so much recently, um, but friends of mine who are touring comedians and stuff, obviously their tours have been been cancelled, and yeah. um, it's there've been sort of nods and winks to trying to do sort of socially distanced gigs, but it's all you know, 
it's difficult for the venues as well because how do you sustain how do you pay and, and people whose livelihood is dependent on performing in front of audiences has just been kind of ripped away on on a on a personal front so i write for so aside from sort of scripted stuff i also write for uh, tv shows so um uh, things like the last leg and variety things mm. like this um so our first series was sort of cut short because of covid uh, it then came back with them doing a version with the presenters in their rooms but other shows that i write for which do rely on an audience just just haven't happened they just you know yeah. they couldn't be recorded so yeah it's been it's quite a sort of scary time when you feel that lack of a safety net it's sort of obviously you're self-employed and it, it all goes and it's like oh um, there's not massive amount of support um from the government really so uh yeah that's that's it's it, yeah it's been it's been of course sort of scary time I've been, but i've been lucky enough that other things have, have come back in i did a radio four sitcom which we, we managed to record and um some other stuff but in general yeah it's been it's been pretty brutal but i think i think much more brutal for people who are who are live performers yeah. i think really people who who make their living doing stand-up like you know big names and from people who just do from people not just people who do the circuit through to, to big touring names they've all it's the same problem they can't perform so it's um yeah it, i think the industry's really been sort of properly hurt by it yeah now i've heard some terrible stories you know comedians are basically lower rung of the circuit having essentially just given up and taken up what we call you know, normal jobs yeah well it's, it's hard because like people, people put so much time into yeah. it and um there's a brilliant comedian called lauren patterson She's fantastic. Who wrote a very sort of a moving blog, actually, quite, quite uh, this week, which is worth worth reading. Just her, talking about her experience of all the hours and just traveling around the country and all the time that goes into sort of building your material and sort of taking that chance and risking it, and uh, and then suddenly all this work, there's nothing. You can't perform, so it's kind of everything drops away, and then how can you? You just can't do your job anymore. Um, <clears throat> I think still people feel it's kind of you know the nature of performance can sometimes be seen as just a, a silly thing that people do is on the side and just for you know oh it's just a, you're just showing off but actually you know these people have put just hundreds and thousands of hours of care into the Edinburgh mm. shows and into the, the every word they're saying on stage is art you know it is art and it's through a sense and it's like any job it's just hours and hours of care and dedication and risk it isn't just people doing something because they want to show off it isn't mm. like that it is it is a job and it brings money into the country and uh, so I, ju I just i just feel for people it's like this thing that's so hard to work towards and to achieve any success in has just, has just dropped away but you know in every work of life every walk of life at the moment people are finding the same thing people are losing their jobs across the country it's just incredibly scary time isn't it for everyone really so uh yeah hopefully things will improve next year on all fronts but yeah it's, it's, it's a difficult time difficult time for the industry yeah no it's it's absolutely heartbreaking i mean i've developed a little bit of understanding of of comedy over the last sort of year did a podcast which related to comedy and just talking to comedians and following them and i think one thing a lot of people might not understand is how deep the sort of industries as well you see people on live at the apollo or mock the week or whatever but there's hundreds more comedians working and, and trying yeah, to get a living exactly. and it's hard enough even pre pandemic but during a pandemic you know when all that work goes and as you say I put so much time and effort getting working up the ladder as well and then seeing it completely and <clears throat> as you say there's the circuit gigs there's these uh, weekend gigs like you know the glee yeah. clubs and the comedy store and all these sort of places and and small independent arts venues and little theatres that do all these things none of these shows are able to run at the moment 
obviously a lot of these venues are playing high rent. They'll be <laughs> in the centre. They're just trapped in a situation where they can't get people in, so they can't pay the product. So that sort of side of things is imploding as well. Mm. So um, yeah, it's it, it's 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 absolutely brutal. It's yeah, it's, it's a brutal time. We'll see, we'll see what happens, but it's uh, yeah, it's just heartbreaking, really. Yeah, very much so. Um, right, let's talk about potentially happier things, which is football. <laughs> uh, we'll see how mm. it goes. Um, mm. So I said in the introduction that um, <coughs> you're here to talk about Aston Villa, uh, which you are, but it's only part, uh, partly true in terms of what we're going to touch on because you've got a rather interesting, unusual relationship with football. Yeah. Uh, and football fandom in particular. So, so really keen to sort of explore that. But before we get too deep into it, let, let's focus initially on Villa. Um, yeah. Fair to say your first love? So as, as my first, the football, yeah, it, it, I, in the nineties, yeah. um, yeah, I loved Villa so much. It was basically all I talked about. Aston Villa and championship manager were the two things <laughs> I talked about in the nineties. That, that was literally it. Um, I think like my first memory of football is actually USA 94. It's when I first really properly started to get into it properly, I think. Okay. Uh, like, and it really captured me. There was something about that tournament. I don't know what I know. Like, we weren't even there. Like, England weren't even at USA, the USA '94. But there's, there was some. I remember watching it on my auntie's television, and like the, we didn't have a T. I didn't have a TV in my house as well, it's worth saying. So I had uh, really? until I was fifteen. There was no TV whatsoever. That's like, I, it, we, we, we it was Radio Four on in the corner, no television, and and the sort of like books and and the outside world that's basically what it was and the lion king so, soundtrack as well obviously what's that sorry and the lion king soundtrack as well <laughs> and the lion king soundtrack <laughs> yeah lion king being the only thing i'd ever seen on screen um but uh yes you were saying like for watching my aunties like sort of like that really bright grass i remember that the color of it and it just being really exciting and there's such the american shirt yeah what's that such a vivid tournament the colors were yeah. so rich i remember just yeah it was just incredibly kind of evocative. The fact that England weren't there didn't matter because it just had such a pull. I remember that tour. I mean, I was 13 at the time and absolutely gripped by it, yeah. Yeah, the, it, what, there was something, I think the whole fanfare of it at the beginning, it was kind of, it was also American and overly produced and exciting with it. Um, and uh, some fantastic games there and the shirt, I mean, brilliant shirts as well. If you're a fan of 90s football shirts, USA 94 is a, it's a superb place to go. The USA shirt for a start. The one that Ale Alexi Lalas used yeah. to wear with the big star. Oh, beautiful. But um, then after that, I sort of started to get into football. I, I'd sort of vaguely been interested in Aston Villa, and then it just grew and grew and grew. And uh, throughout the 90s, they were just, I just loved them so much. They were just, yeah. And still, it's when I think about players and my favourite ever players, they're all from that Villa team. They're all from the sort of like 94 to 99 sort of time Villa team. That's, that's there. Every player, basically my favourite player, comes from that time. But why Aston Villa? So why Aston Villa? So the reason was, so I grew up in Bath. Um, Bath has never had a particularly strong team. No. Um, we uh, did very briefly have, we had quite a good player called Jamie Gosling, who also went to my school, um, who was like this bright attacking midfield hope. Uh, and then I remember he scored against Chippenham in the cup and went to celebrate by the wall and the wall collapsed on his leg and he broke his leg. Bloody so hell. yeah, it was really wow. quite bleak. And this was sort of the, the, the level of the stadium, the level of the stand and the level of everything about Bar City. It was like lower league disaster yeah. at that time. And it's got, I, I think like 
friends try to take me along, sort of family friends try to take me along to Bath, but it's quite hard to coax someone who's 12 and sort of getting into football to go and see football at that level, I guess. Um, and um, another family friend, my dad's best friend, happened to be a season ticket holder uh, up at Villa. And about sort of four times a season, a ticket would come free for me to go up with him and his son. And we would go up and, and watch Villa. So um, that was something like my first experience, basically, of being taken up to watch this team and, and through them becoming, you know, more and more involved and more and more interested in it, basically. Um, yeah, so it became my team. Excellent. Well, we'll come on to your, your first ever Villa game, which is, um, was eventful, to say the least. But I think what's, yep. what's interesting about Aston Villa and younger listeners and younger people in general may not fully appreciate this, is that in the 90s, Villa was still considered a properly massive club. I mean, mm. they'd won the European Cup in 1982. So the previous decade, Aston Villa were champions of Europe. They beat um, Bayern Munich 1-0 in Rotterdam in 82. And yep. I mean, this, this falls slightly out of your, um, the period <clears throat> you were supporting the club. But again, I think something that's perhaps forgotten, a bit of a sliding doors moment in modern football, so in the Premier League era, is Villa really pushed United hard, Man United hard in the first Premier League season, 92-93. Yeah, um, and they were top with six games to go um, before they sort of fell away, and, and United won that first title under Ferguson, and obviously the rest is history. So if Villa had been a bit more sturdy and a bit more consistent, yeah. held their nerve a bit more. You know, Ferguson may have got sacked, and the whole of sort of English football might change drastically. So, and in ninety three, ninety four, of course, they beat United in the Coca Cola Cup final yeah. as well. So yeah, that time they they really were a team of sort of some stature like look at the players they had just before that like Dean Saunders he's a great great players like really strong Dalian Atkinson was around at that time like really strong lineup in the early 90s it's kind of a really really good team yeah well in that 92-93 squad so they had the likes of Mark Bosnich Paul McGrath Steve Staunton Kevin Richardson Ray Houghton as you, as you mentioned Dalian Atkinson Dwight York and someone who I had no idea played for Villa at that time was Frank McAvenny who I'm now yeah. convinced he's the one who corrupted Dwight York and turn him into a massive shagger. Um, <laughs> but it was a squad, you know, full of talent and um, yeah. character. And obviously, a lot of those players were there when you got into the team, when you were getting to the team in the mid 90s. And when yep. you go up to see them, are you, obviously, quite young at the time, but are you getting a sense that you're following one of English football clubs, big English football big clubs? And this is a team that can win, can win the league and do well in Europe. I and mean, what's the kind of things that you're being told about Villa as well, as well as believing for yourself at that time? Well, yeah, it, it, it did feel like an exciting, it did feel like an exciting club. Like, it, it, I'm not sure what it was like uh, in other cities around the country, whether there are many Villa fans elsewhere. Like, I, I remember there was like maybe three of us in my, in my year of, there were like 300 kids in my year or whatever. Most people were Liverpool or Man United or whatever. Yeah. But it, it was very, it was very much that we were the, one of the teams that were sort of battling in there and about. And I remember going to, when going to see Villa early on, they always felt like a team that were sort of, confident that I remember Villa Park being full and sort of full of voice and um and Villa predominantly being on the attack and sort of they, they, they were quite an exciting side then um so yeah I think I think there was definitely a feeling of uh them becoming something especially and they had sort of exciting young players like Dwight York was clear is incredibly talented like even from the off was just was had something these these, these players that were clearly sort of had a, a trajectory about them were in that team and also around them people you know seasoned internationals like Ray Houghton and all this sort of stuff it was it was an exciting team yeah it was yeah actually just going back to yeah you grew up in Bath I think that's really interesting because um one of my friends and actually quite a well-known journalist James Pierce 
uh, grew up in that, I think grew up in Bath as well, certainly in that part of the world. And he was a Liverpool fan. And I, mm. I get the sense that if you live in one of those cities and one of those areas that hasn't got predominant, uh, predominantly strong football team, local football team, you do end up obviously supporting the biggest teams. And I mean, who am I to speak? I live in London, support Liverpool for God's sake. But <laughs> I was just wondering, is, was it really very much a case that it's loads of Liverpool and Man United fans around you at the time and then a smattering of perhaps of Villa and Arsenal? And yeah, it was, yeah, Arsenal, Man United, Liverpool. Those are like the main teams. Yeah. Uh, there was one kid who sported Bath City in, in, in my year, I remember, and he came up he, on Fridays. You know, when they were like dressed down Friday, he'd be there in his Bath City shirt, fair play to him. But um, most of them, it was that. And then there was, there was me and uh, a couple of other kids who, who sort of liked Villa, but uh, but as I say, I know didn't, they didn't feel like it, it was, was never an embarrassment to be in a Villa shirt when you were playing with your mates or whatever. They always felt like a team that mattered, even from Bath, which is sort of so many miles away. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I think uh, I, I felt I remember feeling genuinely excited. And I felt that they could compete. I remember it felt like a team that could could reckon and could could do something. Yeah. Now, as I said, I mean, in that period in the 90s, they were a big club. I mean, I'm a bit older than you and I remember, you know, I do remember the start of the 90s and feeling Villa were a team that were going into seasons thinking they could win the league. Yeah. And what's interesting, actually, the rest of the 90s, I didn't really know this until I, until I researched it um, ahead of recording this episode, is it's a really mixed decade for Villa. It was quite mad, really, almost kind of schizophrenic. So you finish, so obviously you push United all the way in 93, almost, you know, almost win the league. The following season, Villa finished 10th. And in yeah. 94, 95, which may be your first sort of proper season. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I, yeah. Do you remember where Villa finished in 94, 95? No, so where, where were we then? 18th. Were we that low? We were that low, and you, but you didn't get relegated because it was a 22-team um, Premier League, the last ever 22 Premier League team. So yeah. bottom four, uh, so 19th, 20th, 21st and 22nd got relegated. So you finished one, Villa finished one position above the relegation zone. That was a final ever 22-team season. Yes. Um, and, then, and then it became 20 teams after that from 95, 96 onwards. Okay. Um, but, then, but then there's some good finishes, sort of third and fourth and, and yep. seventh, eighth, quite solid. And then the League Cup within 96 as well. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's, I, I mean, I remember the period, but I don't remember Villa sort of jumping up and down the table that much. I remember the League Cup win as well, definitely 96. So, I'm kind of in that period, and when you're properly getting into sport in the club, what's your kind of memories, your abiding memories of that time? And did it feel as wild as, I've, as a league position guessed it was? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, may, I think I've sort of blotted out these sort of terrible times. And if it, <laughs> but I think my, my, my abiding memory would have been... Like '96, the sort of the side when we have sort of Milosevic and play players like this coming in, uh, feeling like it really did feel like a team that could sort of challenge. I remember uh, it, it felt sort of an exciting side. Like there was sort of we were we were we had some kind of interesting players with real pace coming down on the, on the flanks. Players like Alan Wright, who you know, who I one of my favourite ever players to play in the Premier League, incidentally, who's who's five foot four yeah. uh, and uh, just an absolute rocket. We sort of like fly up and down the left flank, and we just had that sort of exciting attacking play. Um, yeah, so so my abiding memories of being a, are really in the nineties in that period of being a team that sort of were challenging, and it felt like, yeah, it felt exciting. Yeah. Do you remember watching the ninety six League Cup final? It was against Leeds, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Against Leeds, I think. Yeah, right. Milosevic and uh, it was, I think Ian Taylor as well scored. And I think Dwight York. Yeah, yeah. that's what it was. Um, yeah, that was a really good side. That that for me, that's I think that's probably my the shape of my villa, my favourite Villa team at that at that time. Um, 
so many great players, real good mix. Like Ian Taylor, just such a great, hard-working central midfielder, just got up and down, scored goals, would sort of like battle and be around the six-yard box when need be, and just like had, had everything. Um, even players like Mark Draper, I think, had... Uh, I, I really like these real sort of like... Hard, there's a really hard-working central spine to it. And then up front, York was just a genius. I think York is... When he left for Man United, I've been absolutely gutted about that. Like, he was just... He was so talented, had so much flair about him, and he was so exciting to watch. Um, I, I even think Milosevic was underrated, to be honest. I mean, he went on to have a great career after Villa. Villa fans, like, hated him at the time. I remember when he was about to leave, I think he went to Real Zaragoza, um, me and my friends waiting around and counting down. It said in the paper at, at 12 o'clock at lunchtime, he was going to sign for Zaragoza. They, for some reason, given the timer when he was going to leave. <laughs> and we were sat down wa- watching the <laughs> clock at school and we all celebrated when 12 o'clock really? came out of a lot of which went. Um, but like, he, he was, a, I, think, I generally think he, time has shown that he was a quality player. He went on to have a really good career yeah. in Spain afterwards. He, I've never seen a player who was so unbelievably one-footed, though. Like, it was ridiculous. He, he only had one foot. So I, I, it, like, it would come to his left foot, and there was, it was like a child. It was like he had no, <laughs> or, you know, like, like, a, like a young fawn on ice. He just had no idea how to use his left foot. Incredible. But um, could smack it with his right. Just had incredible talent on that side. So one-sided. But um, that season, people... Villa fans hated him for a while when he was just not sort of taking off. But um, but it was it was a strong team and like you had like Mark Bosnich was was a fantastic keeper like you know just incredibly talented you know obviously had his problems stuff had Echiog and, and, and Southgate these just brilliant players it was it was a fantastic team. Yeah, well on Milosevic, I mean first of all that twelve o'clock deadline what. So there's no transfer deadline then when he's... I mean, he left the club in 98. No, it wasn't. It was a... Re- I just remember it. Why it was, was like that time so specific? I have no idea. It was a Monday <laughs> afternoon at school and uh, <laughs> it was during English and uh, my friends, uh, Nick Moores and Chris Moores, who were two of a set of three triplets, all celebrated uh, when Milosevic went at 12 and we got in trouble from the teacher. I remember our English teacher going crazy at us. Um, for sort of cheering and jumping around for absolutely no reason. Quite hard to explain to a 72-year-old English teacher the importance of... <laughs> no, he's really one-footed, Miss. Really <laughs> you don't realise how important. We, this, we've got decent money for him. Um, but he was... <laughs> he's so non-plus. But, yeah, he, he was, like, uh, represented everything we thought was awful about Villa. But actually, we were completely wrong. He was clearly a decent player, just probably hadn't bedded in properly. Um, but uh, it was an interesting team as well. There was like Tommy Johnson was in that side as well. He might have left us before that. I do you remember him? He was a red yeah, yeah. yeah, he came from Derby, right. didn't he? I think. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And he'd, I was fascinated by him that he'd come up the leagues and had uh, made it to Villa and then was part of the squad and was playing games despite the fact he'd been. Uh, yeah, so Derby would have been quite a way. No, I can't remember really before that, but basically his whole career he'd, he'd come up sort of Vardy style, not quite as much, but mm. there was an element of him crawling up through the leagues. And uh, I think that there's that sort of uh, there's an excitement to that sort of thing. That's I, I like. I don't know how you describe it now. I find that um, Premiership clubs now. The signings, just, there's so many signings that come in. And it just, it just, it doesn't feel that there's any, rarely a story behind anything. Uh, it's just amassing players that all these scouts have got, been looking at for years, bye, bye, bye. And there's sort of less of a sort of, 
I don't know, each signing feels less precious, if that makes sense. Uh, it felt like something, it may be, maybe just my memories are, are, are wrong, but I have this feeling of like Villa signing players in the 90s and it really feeling important. Like there weren't loads of these players, there weren't loads and loads of players coming in every season. It wasn't like a great overhaul every season. Players would stick around more. So, especially when players were coming up from overseas, it felt exciting. And um, like Fernando Nelson, who came from Porto, who was our right wing back, who wasn't even that great, but I loved him because he'd come from Portugal. Porto was exciting, exotic side. It did well in Europe, relatively well anyway. And um, it just felt sort of novel and different. And uh, it felt like it was you're part of an exciting time, I suppose, really. No, I totally agree with that. I mean... I, I now, in 2020, and for a few years um, bef- before now, have suffered really from sort of transfer fatigue. I'm just... Yeah. There's so much incessant talk about transfers on social media, on TV, Sky Sports News, obviously, especially in the press, in the media, that by the time... There's such laser focus on every single signing, especially at the top level, that by the time they arrive at the club that they're going to sign yeah. for, you feel like you've already watched them play or you know so much about them. There's no mystique. There's nothing interesting. I mean, I remember when the likes of in the 90s, when Georgie Kincladze and Tony Yeboa were signing for Manchester City and Leeds. I mean, even yeah. as a Liverpool fan, I just found it incredibly exciting to watch these players play who were never heard of, I knew nothing about. So there was intrigue there. And then you'd see them play and they were incredibly talented. And that felt exotic. Well, Kincladze is a perfect example of that. Yeah. And like, you had this idea of uh, Georgia. I, like, I thought, I had no idea. You know, I wasn't really aware of where Georgia was. I didn't know. And this one of the most fantastically talented players I've ever seen. Uh, that goal against Southampton, the one where he dribbles. Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Like, and I, I think that's partly why USA 94, to some extent, is so exciting as well in my memory. Even though it was my earliest World Cup, I really, although I properly remember, but the players were all new. Mm. Like, you, you see international tournaments now, predominantly, all the players are at the big teams because the scouting network is so much more advanced. Mm. So that... All, even if it's just the young players from these countries who are coming through in a, in a reamble, it's, it's, uh, there's that, 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 that sort of element of surprise just isn't there. And like, I remember even, even when they didn't work out, like Villa bought a guy called Sasa Kerchik, who you may remember from Bolton. Yeah, I remember very well, yeah. Didn't really work out at Villa, but he was, it was exciting. He felt it was risky. I think it was like four million, which felt big at the time. But even then, that was like, that was the summer signing. That was the guy we'd bought. It was like, oh, it's exciting. Whereas now, you see it hugely with teams that come up. Uh, when they complete, I always think that must be so disappointing to be a fan of a team like Fulham last year. Like when they came in and they bought basically like a so solid crew's worth of players. <laughs> it's just insane. Collective term really. for a shitload of summer transfers. Yeah, <laughs> so like, I, I always do this. It's, I, I draw everything to sort of championship manager, but it's like I ruined so many championship manager games when I would come up or I'd overhaul my squad and <laughs> it would be have 50 guys, yeah. none of whom I had an attachment to. And I was like, oh, I don't want to play this anymore. I've ruined this game. You know, having brought Peterborough up to the Premiership, I've now ruined it in one transfer season. Um, but there was, there, wasn't, there was an attachment to these players. And when they came in, it felt exciting. Even stories like Villa, let's say Guy Whittingham, he was in the army before he came to Villa. This is great. It's so cool. He like he playing semi-pro. He was uh, in the army. And then there he is playing up front, uh, obviously after Sheffield Wednesday for, for Villa. And it, just, it was just great. I, I don't know. I, hadn't, just, I felt there was much more attachment to the players then, basically. And I think it must be the same as well at the top. Like, you can see players like Pogba. Pogba doesn't really care at Man United. Like, he's an unbelievably talented person who costs 90 million quid. But, like, 
if you look through Beckham, you know, Giggs, these are the players that have an attachment to the club. It feels like it matters. Uh, and or even like Roy Keane bought from Forest for United, like this, this, the comparison just isn't there anymore. I just don't think there's the players don't seem to have the same attachment. I know I sound like a really old sort of sort of git as I'm moaning here, but I have this I do have this warmth of a feeling towards 90s football and the way players seem to care about their clubs and the nature of transfers feeling exciting and weighty and something to be sort of cared for and that they've been thought over and yeah so I, I think this is partly why it feels like such an sort of precious time to me well I'm totally with you I think I genuinely think the 90s is the, the best decade uh, of yeah. football we've ever had certainly in this country yeah. I mean, talk to um, Chris Skull who obviously you know very well uh, on mm. episode three of this podcast about this because obviously he presents quickly Kevin Willie scored a fantastic 90s football podcast about this. And for me, I think the reason the 90s is such a great decade is it, it's the best of both worlds. So you've got the great stories and the great characters of the 60s, 70s and 80s. But then you've got the sexy, exotic, incredibly talented foreign football, you know, that yeah. wave of foreign talent that came to this country in the, in the mid-90s specifically. So those two things fuse. So, yeah, you've got, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, you've got John Sitton, you know, it's, telling his late Orient players that he wants to fight them in a club for a fiver. And then you've also got Dennis Burkamp. So, you know, you've just got, the, you've just got everything. Talk about Burkamp there. And this is the same way I felt like York really is like how these exciting foreign players, that, um, invariably foreign, really. Most of the sort of the silky players at that time had come from abroad. Most of them. Um, obviously you get, you know, have Gaza and people like this as well. But a lot of them would have been brought from Italy or it happens to be. But, they stood out so much as well because yeah. they were so different. They, 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 they sort of jarred against the normal spine of a sort of, of an English Premier League team back then. Um, you could, like, even, well, not all, let's say Letizia is an example of the same sort of player. But yeah, Burkamp is just, you watch him when he first came out here, how, how, how different he was. Yeah, I just, I just love that sort of crashing of styles yeah, that yeah. maybe has changed a bit now because obviously the, the game has changed here. It's, it's evolved. It's become more European in its style or whatever it happens to be. But there was something such a sort of head-on collision between sort of your ex Syria A death-touching short passes, tiki-taka sort of feeling that would come in and then they'd be up against sort of Francis Benali, <laughs> or whoever it happened to be, or or Matt Oakley, or whatever. So it's got a bit. Uh, yeah, I, I, and that was exciting, though, wasn't it? It just completely sort of the war of the two worlds, basically. Yeah, I mean, I tell you, I've never been more excited than when Jurgen Klinsmann signed for Spurs in nineteen. Yeah, I'm not even a Tottenham fan. I nearly wet myself. I just couldn't Amazing. believe he was coming to England. Yeah, um, Savan Milosevic. You go back to him because I, yeah. I do think he's a he's a fascinating figure. So he spent three years at Villa, nineteen ninety five to nineteen ninety eight. I remember mm. as well. He was seen as a massive flop. Yeah, uh, by Villa fans. I, I checked his stats earlier. Twenty nine goals in uh, ninety games, I think, which isn't a bad okay, one in three. Uh, yeah, one in three, which isn't Ish. terrible. But he was known as Misilotovic uh, by Aston Villa yeah. fans as well. So that probably tells you everything you need to know about him. Maybe this sums up Milosevic. It's all summed up in one game, which is your first ever yeah. uh, game as an Aston Villa fan. The first game you attended at, uh, or the first game, the first Villa game you saw, I should say, at Villa yeah. Park. So it took place. On the 17th of December, 1995, Aston Villa 4, Coventry 1. Correct. Um, Tommy Johnson, you mentioned, obviously gave Villa the lead. And then Milosevic got a hat-trick, 48 yeah. minutes 
uh, 63 minutes and 80 minutes. He also missed a, sit, a sitter in that game as well, according to uh, the, the independent match report that you sent yeah, me on. That, that, game. that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> his, entire okay. career, his entire career in one game, yeah, scores hatching. Also <laughs> but um, should say as well, Dion Dublin got uh, Coventry's goal in 54 minutes. So essentially all the goals were scored by Aston Villa players. Because obviously Dublin played yeah. And Villa. Kevin Richardson, I think, got sent off as well. I he think got sent off. Yeah, no, he did. He got sent off in the first half for Coventry. Uh, yeah. And he was a former Villa player, of course. And Dwight York, who mentioned as well, he had to be carried off in the first half with an injury. So, I mean, that is immense. And also, I think, at another sort of level, I think I'm pretty sure Big Ron, who was the Coventry manager, Having recently gone there, and all the Villa fans were yelling, uh, "Big Ron is a Villa fan." I remember that throughout. Obviously, having he managed us for a while, he was. So, yeah, he was country manager. And Brian Little was was Villa manager, and yeah. Brian Little had, had replaced uh, Ron Atkinson about a year before. So, I mean, yeah. that's one hell of a first game to have attended. It was great. Yeah, you remember it well. I do remember. It. I remember it really well. I remember. Yeah, it was just exciting. Obviously, Coventry Villa is always going to be a sort of heated game. Uh, Villa were just absolutely rampant, and Milosevic was fantastic. He was, he was, he was so good. Um, and I wasn't expecting it at all because I'd travel up with my friends, and we'd spent the whole journey up saying how rubbish Savin Milosevic was, <laughs> and then the whole way, journey back talking about how amazing Savin Milosevic was. Yeah, yeah. Um, despite the fact it was against Coventry, I mean Coventry were not. You know, l- l- we, should, we shouldn't confuse this for Coventry being some incredible team. It was very weak side. Kevin yeah. Richardson was old at Villa and then a pensioner at Coventry, basically. Um, and uh, but it was yeah, it was really exciting. And I was just behind the goal where Coventry, um, where Milosevic scored his hat trick, and uh, yeah, it just it was just great. And it, I, I just found it so exciting. It was just you know it was great. I yeah, I loved it. Great for picking up the threads again, finding Charles more convincingly this time. By Noel Whelan deep in defence. Tommy Johnson. It's a good cross. Milosevic! At long, long last, Savo Milosevic makes himself at home at Aston Villa. Let's get it right. It's far from his first goal for the club, but it is his first goal for the club here in front of the home fans. What a good cross by Johnson. Beat file and all ends up. And Milosevic was there when it counted. Ekio. Taylor. Draper. Milosevic! Now he started, he's not going to stop. Two for Savo Milosevic. Three for a delighted Aston Villa and their fans. And Derby Day belongs to the man from Belgrade. Pickering running into trouble in the space of Townsend and Milosevic. He's got his hat-trick. He's filled his bridge today, all right. Savo Milosevic makes it 4-1 for Aston Villa. And three for him. Pickering just taking a chance too many in pursuit of the game. Uh, Milosevic calmly lifting the ball beyond John Filan into the far corner. And who knows what a landmark this could prove to be in the Aston Villa career of this young 22-year-old from Serbia.
Villa Park's an incredible ground. I mean, behind Anfield, I think it's possibly my favourite yeah. ground because it's a proper big ground. The whole end is... is, a, is a, Yeah, is a, so that, that's, that's where I... And yeah. the exterior is beautiful as well. That sort of red, dark uh, claret um, and sort of it's red... It's awesome. Pink, yeah, facades. Well. Really? I mean, great stadium, isn't it? Great stadium. The, the whole tent is such an exciting place to stand when it's full. That's where I was that day. And um, it's completely gripped. I think, like... So you know how certain stands feel um, like they've got just an unusual particular energy to them. Mm. Um, sometimes sort of angry, sometimes it can tip over. It doesn't always, it's not always pleasant, but it, there's a sort of, there's a fire to it. Like the Bob Bank at Cardiff, um, which would be Ninian Park before they moved. When I lived at university, I used to go and stand on that. Um, I used to go and watch Cardiff a bit with my mate Scott. And that was always sort of such an exciting stand to be in. It was like on the edge of violence at all times, but just, you know, had such an energy to it. And yeah, the whole tent felt like that as well. And um, yeah, it was, it was, but yeah, it's, it, it's such a great stadium. It really is. I love the color of it, as you say, as you're approaching it and, uh, and the way it's just sort of amongst all the houses and it's just, it's just beautiful. Like obviously these modern stadiums are all well and good, et cetera, but there's some, I love love these um, rectangular things that are just stumped in the middle of um, sort of just rows of housing. It's just, yeah. you just it's this thing is just dropped in the middle of, uh, of a town. It's just yeah, it's great. It's a, it's a great great place to go. And I, I, I haven't been for a few years, but it is a great stadium. Yeah, now proper old school epic stadium, I think. And as you say, like like all classic grounds or built within a community as well so mm. no I absolutely love it I mean you, we've you've touched on Dwight York quite a few times I do feel we um we need to talk about him and um, he is in your all-time Aston Villa 11 which will yeah, um, yeah. your all-time Aston Villa 90s 11 specifically which we'll come on to later but yeah I mean he he I've got his stats as well 231 uh, games for Villa 73 goals spent eight years at Villa between 1990 and 98 then he obviously left to join Manchester United so I mean he actually came way before that mid-90s wave of, of, of foreign talent yeah. in the Premier League. And again, I remember him really well being kind of loose-limbed. It felt like he was slightly inconsistent and I was really shocked by how well he did at Man- Manchester United. But the way you're talking about him sounds like he was cons- well, relatively consistently good for Villa during certainly your time watching the team. I was convinced that whoever he went to would gain an unbelievably talented player. Uh, yeah. Um, and so it wasn't any surprise how he did at Man United. Um, I had the, the Muller-Villa shirt you know, with the, uh, yeah. the Muller logo on the front. Beautiful shirt, that. So good. I, I've still got that. It has, um, the Villa badge has a sort of thickness to it, a weight in a way that you don't find on shirts nowadays. Yeah. It's got like a, it's almost like a spongy material that kind of comes out from the shirt. It's beautiful. And I had York's name on the back. Um, and he was just, uh, my memories of him is just always being an exciting option. So even if he wasn't scoring, there was just his movement, and just how unpredictable he was. He was just, uh, just a, a fantastic thing to have in your team that kind of disrupts the flow of how the game's going. It's the defense, the opposition defense is never entirely sure how to mark him. It's his ability to drop off and just, yeah, a, a fantastic player. So I, I, I wasn't surprised he was a success at Man United. I think he's um, just, I thought he was a genius. I genuinely did think he was a genius. Ah, really? Yeah. And as I said, I, I was quite surprised. We, I mean, United spent a lot of money, 20-odd 20, 20 million on him in, in yeah. summer 98. And I, I mean, I thought they'd overpaid, but obviously he proved me well and truly wrong. He was incredible for <laughs> much every year. Um, no, he's a fantastic player. And I actually interviewed him in, I think it was in 2009, I think it was, when Villa played Man United in the League Cup. 
Yeah. Um, I think it was 2009. And uh, I got some time with him ahead of that game. because obviously played for Villa at Manchester United and I didn't interview him. And uh, not joking, I met him at a hotel in central London and he had just landed back in the country having been at the Trinidad Carnival. And he came Amazing. in. His cap was um, facing uh, to the side. His, his shirt was unbuttoned and then and untucked up from his jeans. He had a, a one, awesome. one or two chains kind of pouring out from his chest as well. And he was definitely hung over. So, um, yeah, top, top guy, Dwight. You know, oh, he, he should be. That's great. He's a nice guy. Lovely guy. Really great guy. Yeah, and smart as well. And at that time, I think he was talking really passionately about going to coaching and management. We talk earlier about sort of attachment to clubs and players feeling there's a genuine link there. And I remember when he left, I was like, generally I was heartbroken I was absolutely gutted yeah absolutely gutted and this player that we sort of discovered had just improved and improved and they're just was so happy to play football he had such a sort of like joyous way about him and just 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 always laughing and joking with his teammates had such fun about him and then he was gone. Like I wasn't I wasn't surprised and I thought it probably would be United if he went somewhere. But I was, uh, yeah, I was absolutely gutted. I know, didn't John Gregory, who's obviously Villa manager at the time, he came out with an extraordinary quote about when, I think he said, when Dwight told me he wanted to leave and join United, I wanted to shoot him, which is... But yes, he did, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine a manager saying that, Jürgen Klopp saying that about Mo Salah when he tells him he wants to go to Real Madrid? I mean, the internet would blow up. In the, <laughs> in the 90s, we just sort of shrugged those things off because it was such a mad decade. When Savo told me he didn't want to leave Villa, I wanted to shoot him. <laughs> yeah. Says Brian Little. <laughs> <laughs> when the clock ticked to 12.01 and Savo was still here, I wanted to... <laughs> <laughs> And he'd written, just kidding, on the sign. <laughs> yeah. Genuine question, Tom. Um, yeah. Did you eat more mother rice in the 90s than you would have done had it not been a sponsor? Of I did go through a bit of a stage of trying... Yeah, I, it, it became sort of a bit of a fixture in my packed lunch. It did, really? actually. I was asking my mum to buy it. Yeah. <laughs> And then the Muller Corners I moved on to. Big fan of a Muller Corner. It's just basically a yoghurt that they haven't bothered finishing themselves. <laughs> <laughs> it's a yoghurt with admin. That's what, it, that's what a Muller is. It's a thing is. But um, yeah, it felt like that. that it, was an, it was an exciting time. We had Dwight York, we had Milosevic, we had Muller Rice. Uh, we had uh, Muller Corners. Um, yeah, it, it, it was... Um, it, I think that was a great... That's a great... That was a great um, sponsor, Muller. It looked cool as well. Yeah, but yeah. In, in this time now of, of gambling companies and sort of abhorrent things that, you know, are, are being pushed on, on shirts everywhere, why, why, why not? You know, simple times of sort of a, of a, a sweet rice-based company. Well, that's, it's nice, a yoghurt company on your front. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I thought it was, I, I love that shirt. I, I, I would say arguably that's my favourite ever um, apprenticeship shirt. Uh, is that the one with the pinstripes? The, pinstripe? the one with the pinstripes. Yeah, that is a lovely shirt, actually. Yeah. I think that's the one you won the League Cup in 96. It is, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, I do still own it, but if I tried to put it on now, <laughs> I would uh, implode. There was no, no chance of fitting into it, but I do still own it. I have it somewhere in this house, yeah. I know that feeling very well. I know that feeling very well. <laughs> right. Um, so are you, are you, have you gone through a sort of lockdown weight gain? Um, I think... You look very slim. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I think I'm about where I was because I've been running quite regularly during lockdown. So, um, yeah, I've been running. I haven't, I've, I've really I've piled on the pounds. A, a lot of my shirts have been sort of have become open shirts. Right. <laughs> <laughs> shirts that I could previously do up. I have now uh, I've decided, oh, no, no, it's, I'm not too fat for it. That's now an open shirt. Yeah. <laughs> so as, as you can see, this, it'll, it'll go over a T-shirt. And I go, this is fine. It's how it's supposed to be. I'm not well, it's like a jacket. I'm just wearing it differently. 
Good say we're on Zoom and I can see you. I can see you very clearly. That looks like is that is that shirt? Oh, yeah, it is a shirt. Oh, no, it's, it's all really jacket, jacket, it? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, the point is, I need to sort it out, and I will do next year. You look absolutely fine, Tom. Don't worry about it. I've seen, far, <laughs> I've seen far fatter men than you, Tom. You're not fat. I, I do appreciate that. Thank you very yeah. much. <laughs> Let's compliment you, Badger, not Dan. I'm guessing. <laughs> Thank you. Um, right. So this is where I think the story takes quite an interesting turn because the '90s were the decade where you really sported Villa, but then. Yeah. As, you know, as, as we were discussing in, in, in sort of the build-up to doing this episode, you kind of stopped supporting them. And why did that happen? When specifically that happened? Did it, did it basically coincide with the end of the 90s? Yeah, I, I, it did really. Um, I saw as, as the 90s went along, and I, I wasn't... The opportunity to go and see them uh, was no longer there. Um, the friends who had the season ticket moved from Bath, so I wasn't sort of getting a chance to go up. Had, didn't have any money of my own to go and buy a ticket for the Premiership mm. or anything or travel up. So, you know, um, I was <laughs> my only money I had was saved from uh, me being in Bath Abbey Choir, where they paid me um, twelve pounds every four months. So, uh, from my singing days when I was chorister and I was about twelve or whatever. So that's thirty-six quid a year, and I'd done that for four years. So I had four times thirty-six pounds, which by the time I'd got to sort of. Uh, the late nineties had been whittled away on a Zega game gear and stuff like that. So I, I had no, I had no money left. <laughs> um, but, uh, so that option was gone. I didn't have a chance to go and see them. Um, we didn't have sky. So I didn't get to sort of watch them that much. And I, I, I think it's that it's just, so I, I think maybe the, the, the effect of, of not having a team I could go and see, and there weren't many Villa fans. I was mm. in Bath or people I was sort of friends with who were Villa fans. I then went to uni in the early 2000s. Um, but I've all, I'm, still, I'm still a huge football fan. So I still absolutely love football. But I sort of drifted away from watching Villa and started going and watch Cardiff with friends and stuff like this when I was studying there. But, um, yeah, so that was weird. So this, from this, this point of real passion, it's all I ever talked about, all I ever thought about, really, in my room full of posters and, you know, it's just my, my love. Uh, that sort of ebbed away a bit, really. It was, it was a sort of strange experience. And now... I have a situation where I, 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 for many years, really, I've been a football fan without a club, which is sort of a frustrating situation. I, I, I would like one, I think, but I don't. I, I have no attachment to a club. But I love football. So it, it, it's, it's a strange experience. Was it the case that you supported Watford for a bit as well? Yeah, so I, I did have, I had a brief period where um, family members were Watford fans. Um, who uh, so my my brother married and his his wife he, all her family are season ticket holders and they sort of gave me a shirt and saw that I was sort of ailing and maybe looking for a club and they sort of suggested I follow Watford and whatever I I, I think probably through niceties I'm trying to be polite I, I sort of I, I I tried to sort of feign an interest and I I was kind of I did nominally follow them a bit uh, like the season when. Uh, Tommy Mooney was in the team and sort of Robert Page and that, that sort of size when, when Watford sort of came up, I think it was early 2000s. But really, it wasn't, it wasn't really any huge attachment there. I just sort of uh, said I was just for sort of <laughs> a thing to say, I suppose. But once again, didn't really have any real attachment. Yeah. But um, nothing like my feelings towards Villa. And uh, it was maybe me just sort of scrabbling around trying to find something. But... Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a weird one, that. I think some people find it very easy to sort of become 
attached to a club that isn't near them or isn't and sort of and I, I found that that sort of slipped away and something I found difficult to sort of keep a handle on really keep sort of passion for so the fact you couldn't go see Villa and have that direct contact with them yes was the cause really then for that separation between yourself and, and supporting the club being a yeah I, club. I think so yeah um and maybe it's sort of some of those more and more of those sort of players from that team sort of ebbed away and the sort of side changed a lot. And like a lot of the players had stuck around for a long time in the 90s. You know, the players for a number of seasons, Ian Taylor, all these sort of players were there for a while. And eventually sort of the shape of that side, which had kind of been to some extent quite consistent for a while, sort of changed. Then my attachment to it changed. Um, yeah. And, and, and then I've got this sort of weird situation now where, I don't have a club, but I, I would. I really would love to to, to have a team to support. I went to Chris Gull, um, who presents the fantastic Quickly Kevin podcast. If you get a chance to listen to it, he he uh, and as, as you know him, he took took me to West Ham a few times over the last few seasons. But I haven't that hasn't really clicked for me either. Um, I don't know what it is. I'm 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 looking for. I think I have this idea that. I have a, have a son and I'd, 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 li- I'd like the idea of, so I live in Clapton now, which is in East London. There's a, a local sort of fan-owned club and that sort of thing I do find interesting and I am sort of tempted by uh, the thrill of the cut run and all this sort of stuff. And I think to some extent it maybe does link to this idea of a feeling of a fan link with the clubs and players caring for the clubs. And I think as the premiership became more and more glossy, I think there's maybe something about that that also I felt didn't quite work for me, I think. I think as it became more moneyed and all the more sort of glitzy, maybe the sort of the genuine feelings and links between fans and club and the way the clubs treated their fans and the way the clubs felt about their players and vice versa all sort of shifted a bit, I think, really. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's fair enough to some extent, I guess. I mean, I think, I mean, my love for Liverpool is, is kind of lasted partly because I think maybe, the, you know, I've, I think crucially for me, I was able to regularly get hold of tickets in the early noughties. Yeah. Actually, having not been able to watch them live at all, really, almost practically for the entire 90s, I saw them maybe three or four times in that decade from the noughties onwards, I was watching them regularly. So maybe if I hadn't, if I hadn't had that, something may have happened. Obviously, they're a massive club, so there's a lot of attention around yeah, yeah, yeah. away from them as well. But I get the sense that if you're not going to see them play, and perhaps you feel like the players don't care as much as the, those ones that you saw growing up. Uh, yeah, you might lose interest in them as well. But I just wonder if seeing Villa now at all still stirs some, stir something in you. No, well, funnily enough, it, it, it does. And I mean, <clears throat> especially now with players like Grealish sort of coming through and doing so brilliantly, it, there, there is this clearly is, there's an exciting sort of there's something happening at Villa at the moment, which I, which I think is exciting. I think for. A number of seasons, there seemed to be quite a lot of sort of slightly mercenary players brought in, people that overpaid, and there there didn't seem to be. I don't know really. It feels it feels like now there's like, you know you've got Ollie Watkins, all these sort of exciting players who've who've, who've proved themselves in the, the championship and and have come up through the the, the leagues and, and and you know players like Grealish who've come through. Who, you know he's had his troubles, but he's an unbelievably talented player. Um, it does. It does feel like there's a sort of something exciting happening there at the moment, and whether it's something I'd, I'd return to, I don't know. But um, yeah, I mean, how, how did you find sort of being a, being a Liverpool fan who were younger when you didn't get? Did you get a chance to go and see them much? Or so I, I think I 
sort of became a Liverpool fan or officially became a Liverpool fan in, in 1989. That felt like the year everything took off for me. And that famous Michael Thomas game, uh, the 2-0 Arsenal win at Anfield when they won the league in 89, that was kind of lift off for me. Even though we lost, that was the night I sort of realised I really loved this club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I went to see them for the first time <coughs> December 1992, beat Blackburn 2-1. Yeah. And it was that, that fever pitch thing of walking into a football stadium and immediately falling in love with the idea of watching live football. And I, and I wanted to go every week, basically, but it was impossible. You know, I was 12. Yeah, 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 yeah. I lived in London. My dad wasn't willing to drive me up to Anfield every week. Getting tickets was hard anyway. Um, so I think I saw him again once in 1995, also against Blackburn. I uh, saw him against Arsenal in a League Cup tie in 95. And then I think that was it for the 90s. Uh, I didn't see him again yeah. until, until, the, uh, until, until the noughties. But in that decade, like you, I was, you know, it was my, my adolescent years. And I think those are the most exciting years when, when, when you get into football. You know, when you're a teenager watching football, it, it's just everything around is absolutely thrilling. Even if your team's not winning, everything is just exciting and new and fresh and exciting. Yes, yeah. And that carried me through that decade. And then, as I said, into the noughties, then I was able, I joined the supporters club, which gave me access to tickets. I started going regularly. It's interesting that 2014 as well. So I was going to games regularly. So that all was there. That attachment was there. Going with mates, making mates, going to the game. And obviously, as I said, the team is so big and generally quite successful that 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 fuels you through that as well. That keeps you. It's interesting that idea of you talk about adolescence. There, I think there's a thing that when you're growing up, like football being such an important way of the way you present yourself, and it's like it becomes a way of defining yourself. I think really. A point of your early teenage years, especially when you're sort of struggling for an identity, I think that's like the case for a lot of people. Really, you're, you're sort of like kicking for the surface, really, aren't you? Hoping that something you'll appear, basically, or something you can attach to, be it music or whatever it happens to be. I think that's probably partly why Villa was so important. It was like, oh, this is part of who I am. This is I'm the Villa fan. I'm you know, and there's, there was something lovely to have that attachment. Maybe as I got older, and the frustration of not being able to see them then that changes you get maybe you'll become more content with yourself whatever but um i uh yeah i i think that was a real pity because i because i i i am i'm gutted it did sort of slip away and i i i wish i had and i i it's interesting you say could i could i return to them i mean i i find them really exciting to watch now i really do and i i, I want them to do well like it's um and i think there is a really exciting team in there um I mean the game against Liverpool. They, you know, they've, 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 I'm sorry about that, <laughs> but it was, <laughs> yeah, like it's, it's an exciting, it's an exciting side. They've got a great manager. Who knows? I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they get sort of top ten finish this year. I, th- I think a couple of good signings in January. You never know if, if anyone's going to sign anyone, but I, I think they're really they've got something. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it feels like with you that what's more important is not how well the team you support does, but the story around them. The, the you know, do the people care? Uh, can you feel some sort of attachment and love for the players, affection for the players? And in that sense, this Villa team maybe will appeal to you or, do, or should appeal to you because the manager Dean Smith is a Villa fan. As I said, the captain yep. is a Villa fan. Ollie yep. Watkins is that sort of Tommy Johnson figure, isn't he? Someone who's come through the leagues to exactly, yeah. So this feels like if, if you're ever going to get back into being a proper Villa fan, this would be it. But the big obstacle to that is obviously you can't go to Villa Park because of because uh, of lockdown. So that's sort of frustrating and annoying as well, I guess. Yeah, I think um, yeah, it's 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 an interesting one. I, I think I've always slightly liked a touch of the underdog as well. I, I do quite like that, and um, like I love that Villa were battling there and about to 
win things, but there was still that little bit below Man yeah. United and Liverpool and teams like this. And so that, I think that was a thing that attracted me to it. And if I was if I was to return, go to an, another club now and sort of try and find that link, because I really do like the idea of taking my son to the football. I, it's something I'd, I'd like to do. He loves football. He's only two and a half, but he he he's just, you know he absolutely any excuse to go kick a ball and he's just absolutely loves it. And it may be a thing he's into, but. Um, I like the idea of sort of finding a team with a, with a story, with a sort of exactly, a, yeah. a sense of a community, a sense of a link to community. I went to see Dagenham and Redbridge um, for my birthday with uh, Josh Whittacombe and a couple of other mates who were sort of football fans and, uh, last year. And we just loved it. And it, there was such a fun atmosphere. Like you could see the community there, people coming out their house and just walking down the road and going straight into the ground. And the, the people, people who are running the, the burger still there just they know everyone by name and there's just something really nice about that that link and sometimes when I go to see bigger teams now in the premiership they, it does feel a little bit sterile sometimes it does feel that there isn't that and I think maybe it's nostalgia but my memories of Villa in the 90s do sort of ring rich with some yeah that sort of, sort of something slightly deeper that the community sort of meant something and maybe that is still the case now and you, and you do see that with as you say with Grealish and the excitement about him local people coming through and playing um but that's what i'd like i think really that's what that's what i'm excited by what if i should i if i'm lucky enough to find another team that i feel i sort of can follow and feel that investment with and i'm able to do that i think that's probably what i'd want well if i can make a suggestion tom if uh, there's a club i know that have um, got a real wonderful story behind them uh, a real underdog spirit a real family friendly feel to them they're called manchester city i don't know if you've ever heard of them but <laughs> It really appeals to your kind of grassroots love of football. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a lovely little club. You should be. Good that. thing. Lovely little club. Yeah, yeah. Lovely club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lovely owners. <laughs> everyone there knows. Everyone there knows everyone else by their first name and you know the tea ladies <laughs> for thirty years and oh, the manager. He's a real character as well. Yeah, they're great. <laughs> uh, right. So it'd be absolutely brilliant. I'm gonna let you go soon. Before I do, uh, usual couple of things I end this podcast with. So the first thing is your all-time Aston Villa eleven. As as I said earlier, this is based on players who played for the club during that golden time, the 1990s. So let's go through it. Uh, it's a five-three-two formation. Nigel Spinking goal, right wing back. You yeah. mentioned earlier Fernando Nelson, left wing back. We also mentioned right. him earlier, little Alan Wright. Three centre-backs, Gareth Southgate, Ugo Egiog and Steve Staunton. In midfield then, Mark Draper, Gareth Barry and Ian Taylor. And up front, Dalian Atkinson and the one and only Dwight York. Um, yeah. First thing to say, Ugo Egiog, um, it's the yeah. 3rd of November today and it would have been his 48th birthday because he sadly died. Oh, really? So he was um, he was a um, fantastic player for Villa and you were talking mm -hmm. about championship manager earlier. I remember my first... Um, sort of, the first time I ever knew anything about Ugo Egio was on, on Championship Manager. I found him on Championship Manager. I think I was playing the Italian version. I was Juventus manager or something. And um, I did think it was like a spelling mistake. I thought he was one of those kind of regen players. At some, right, like, yeah, yeah. Letter gone completely wrong. because It's all kind of vowels and there's not many consonants in there. But, I mean, he was a great player for Villa, wasn't he, Ugo? Superb, yeah. Uh, just brilliant. And I, I still find it amazing he didn't get capped more for England, to be honest. Mm. Um, I thought, yeah, he just was so... Yeah, he just—he was just brilliant. He was so strong and quick, and sort of um, just really brilliant centre back. You know, he just had absolute confidence in yeah. someone that I just never—I can't remember a game watching Ugo and not feeling that we had anything other than just a brilliant centre back. It just and um, by all accounts, a really nice guy. It's just—it was just yeah, absolutely heartbreaking. 
that. And I mean, there's a couple of heartbreaking stories in this team, actually. We've got Dalian Atkinson as well up front. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's just terrible. But um, yeah, Ugo, Ugo was just yeah fantastic player. Um, yeah, and it's very sad. Yeah, well, I was going to mention Daniel Atkinson. He's, he's another player who, from this team, who sadly passed away relatively recently. Um, it was a bit before your time, but that goal against Wimbledon in 1992, yeah. I was watching it again this afternoon in preparation for doing this episode. Um, it's absolutely brilliant goal. You forget how good it is. He beats three players. He starts to run inside his own half, beats three players, including one guy twice. Yep. It's been a fantastic, nonchalant chip over the goalkeeper. There's yep. that great celebration. And I don't remember this at all. I don't know whether you've got any recollections at all. I know slightly before you start supporting Villa properly. But when he's celebrating, when he's, when he's sort of stood with his arms out, kind of nodding, looking cool uh, in front of what I presume is the way end at Sellers Park, a fan comes out of the, um, the, the stand he's looking at sort of goes to hug him and also puts an umbrella over his head. It's one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen. Honestly, go find the clip on YouTube. Try to cover Dalian, um, you know, covering Dalian up from the rain as, uh, as he celebrates with him. It's Fantastic. Yeah. Yes, for your time, but I guess you've seen that What's goal. a goal, though. Unbelievable. It reminds me of that George Ware goal in, in Syria. I don't remember. Yeah, remember yeah, yeah. against the Roma, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah, when he beat... Yeah, him. just but just fantastic. It had that lovely sort of mixture of skill and persistence. There's a sort of bit yeah. in the middle where it kind of gets a little bit chopped up and you think he's going to lose it and then he's, he's on again. Uh, yeah, such a finish. Yeah, br- brilliant player, brilliant player. Atkinson. Trying to see his skill and pace. Saunders outside him, Atkinson going through on his own. Saunders to his right, tries a chip. And that's a superb individual goal by Dalian Atkinson. That's a goal fit to win any match and he salutes the crowd as well he may. Skill of the highest order by Dalian Atkinson who rode a succession of tackles, spotted the keeper off his line and then a superbly executed chip. Villa three, Wimbledon one. A world-class finish. Um, anyone else you want to mention that team? I wouldn't mind asking about Fernando Nelson. You did mention him earlier. I, I know all of these players. They're all names that sound, uh, which are very familiar to me. But I've got to be honest, I, I have no recollection. Yeah, Fernando Nelson, is a, he has a Portuguese uh, right wing back, um, or right back sometimes, but uh, played for Porto. And um, yeah, he was decent. <laughs> but I, like, I think he just represents an exciting player coming from Portugal. Yeah. And so for me, feels... He's probably, you know, in my mind, a shiny panini sticker when he's probably not. He's probably just a normal panini sticker. But to my <laughs> mind, he's a shiny. Um, Gareth Barry was a really exciting player. Uh, initially, sort of, I think he played defensively. I think he played like left back, I think, or for Villa when he first he moved. He was centre back for Villa, if I'm not mistaken. Centre back was it, yeah. And then he moved into but He's had a tremendous career and, and has always just been brilliant. And I, even at that time when he first came mm. through, it was just, just a step above, just, so, just had time. And just had such sort of presence about him, even at the age of eighteen or nineteen when he was first playing Villa. Superb player. I'm not in any way surprised he's had such a brilliant career. Um, Ian Taylor, just hardworking, brilliant player, and got goals when you needed goals and sort of dragged you out of things. And uh, remember him scoring against Liverpool, actually. And uh, yeah, just a great player. And then yeah, this it's just a sort of great team that um, speaks to me of a very happy time as a football fan. And um, uh, just loved it, yeah. That, fantastic stuff. Um, right, final question, Tom. So this is a tricky one with you. So the, the, the usual question to end this podcast is, if the club you support could give you something in the next five years, what would you ask for? 
So I don't know how to frame it with you, given you yeah. don't support anybody. So um, I'll leave it a bit loose. You can relate it to Villa or you can relate it to yourself in the next five years in regards to your relationship with Aston Villa specifically or with any club or with fo- football, football or football fandom. What do you want in the next five years? I would like... Uh, which I have two things. Well, one is probably not going to happen, which is I have a recurring dream <laughs> where I... Um, I'm just watching a game and then for some reason someone gets injured just before a penalty and they haven't got any subs and I get pulled out and I get to take a penalty. I don't know why I have this recurring dream and I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm just in my normal clothes and I take a penalty. <laughs> I, I'd like Aston Villa to give me the opportunity to come down and take a penalty in the 89th. You can wear your mother's shirt. You can wear your mother's shirt. Yeah, exactly. I'll email them. I've got my own shirt. But failing that being a possibility, I would like, what would I like? So I think I'd like... I would like to, I generally would like to find a team where I can find a similar attachment to that that I had at Villa. And it may even be Villa again, I don't know, but a feeling of sort of family on sort of community and um, also excitement. I still cling on to those ideas of the cup run and all these sort of things. I think weirdly, the idea of watching a team make it a small team make it to the semi-final the quarterfinal quarterfinals of the um of the fa cup i find almost more exciting than following a huge team win the champions yeah. league whatever i have this sort of idea of just uh, you know the underdog scraping through on sort of muddy grounds and somehow sort of scraping a winner in the 93rd minute uh I, yeah i i i'd like i like the idea of finding a club where i could find that sort of hope and that sort of story and that sort of attachment well, all I'll say is if any football chief executives are listening to this and they want to adopt a supporter, uh, chief executives or chairmen, get in touch with Tom Crane. Uh, you, could do, you could do far worse uh, than have him as a fan of your club. Uh, Tom Crane, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Joy, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Start spreading the news He's playing today He's gonna score a goal again Dwight York, Dwight York Villa's Clarendon Blues Are longing to play We're gonna win the game again White York, White York He's gonna get up And he'll score one For the hope It might be a flying header Or a thunderbolt Andy Townsend's Clarendon Blues Are ready to play Yes, we are back on the road again Down Wembley Way And Savile can win it there He could win it anywhere And it's over to you White George, White George